are studying the epistle of James in a series of lessons on Sunday evening, and we are in chapter 4 of that great epistle, the epistle that have, as we've often said, is called the, the gospel of common sense, so much practical teaching, practical teaching designed to lead us to perfection, that is not sinless perfection, but wholeness or completeness, as the word perfection is is often used in Scripture, to be complete or, or whole, to be mature. And certainly that's what we are to grow toward all of, our, uh, all of our Christian lives. As newborn babes, Peter writes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby, that you may grow. We have a new brother in Christ tonight, Keith Ferris, and he has a great attitude, so excited, and and we certainly pray that he will feed upon the Word of God, and I'm confident that he will, and grow as we're all in a growth process. We never reach the point where we, where we stop growing, where we say, well, I've, I've, uh, I've grown enough now, I'm ready to level off. No, we reach maturity and stability in Christ, but we still study and we still apply ourselves to spiritual growth. And in this great epistle of James, there is much to feed upon to produce that growth in all of us as children of God. James deals a great deal with the tongue. And we've already seen passages where James has emphasized the tongue as an unruly uh, evil, the importance of controlling uh, the tongue. And in chapter 4, uh, at our, our uh, juncture where we are now in this chapter, he's going to return to that subject in verse 11. As we look at verses 11 through 17 of chapter 4 of James tonight, he asks the question in the early part of this chapter, where do wars and fights come from among you? In other words, the source, the source of spiritual strife in the church they come from desires for pleasure that war in your members. And so we need to appreciate the fact that James's audience is, is, uh, is the church. There were some in the church in his time who were, uh, who were not conducting themselves as they, as they should and were not praying as they should, not praying for the right motive, not praying for the right things, etc., not praying at all. And uh, James addresses these things as the source of spiritual strife being lust, worldliness. And worldliness can and does creep into the, into the church at times. And certainly we need to appreciate the fact that Satan, before we become Christians, doesn't work on us because he already has us. It's after we become Christians that he really goes to work on us to try to regain control over our lives. And he does it subtly at times through worldly influences. And James deals with those influences. The source of spiritual strife is worldliness. But he deals with the solution as we looked at earlier. The solution to that spiritual strife, the solution to avoid that spiritual strife is submission to God. Verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humility is enjoined upon us in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, in verse 11, he returns, as we said, to the most familiar subject, the improper use of the tongue. As we said, he's already dealt with it in extensive fashion in James chapter 3. 
Back over at uh, James chapter 1 and verse 19. Remember, he reminded us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. In verse 26 of that same chapter, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. As we said then in chapter 3, the first 13 verses of that chapter deal primarily with the tongue. And when we come to chapter 5, he's going to deal with the matter of the tongue again in verse 12 as he talks about uh, uh, frivolous oaths and, and needless swearing that uh, he addresses in that chapter. So yes, a great deal is dealt with by James about the tongue. And now in verse 11, the admonition is this, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's admonishing his readers here to stop defaming one another, stop criticizing one another, stop slandering, stop backbiting, stop gossiping. Stop running one another down. And keep in mind, as we've said, the audience here is members of the church, brethren. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Is there any possibility that a brother would speak evil of another brother? Well, indeed there is. In fact, all too often it has become not a possibility but a reality. And therefore we need to be very, very much aware of the fact that this can happen and does happen oftentimes in the church. Now, out in the world, we expect that kind of conduct, don't we? We expect to see that kind of attitude. We expect to see those in the world doing that kind of thing. But tragically, at times, it can become one of the most prevalent sins in the church. It may be because it may be viewed by some as being a respectable sin. Of course, there's no such thing as a respectable sin. But there are those who wouldn't contemplate for a moment murder or adultery, but wouldn't hesitate at times to be caught up in a little gossip or a little backbiting. And so we need to see the seriousness of what James writes, but also of what permeates the New Testament in terms of the importance of our words and the use of the tongue. Look at uh, a passage, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 36 beginning, the Lord here says, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now the Lord is not saying that only by our words will we be justified or condemned. Obviously our actions come into play, don't they? But he is emphasizing in that text, on that occasion, how our words are so crucial and that we need to be very careful about how we use our words. Evil speaking, though, think about this. Evil speaking really demands that there be evil hearing. You know, we don't need to be evil hearers any more than we need to be evil speakers. And if we won't hear evil then those who are trying to speak evil may stop that. The prevalence of such sins of the tongue indicates the large number of people who are willing to listen to such things. We don't need to be willing hearers when it comes to someone speaking evil of someone else, do we? No, we need to, as Barney Fife used to say, nip that in the bud, don't we? By simply saying, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't really, I'm not really comfortable hearing this. And I would just uh, 
kind of appreciate it if you just wouldn't go any further. And uh, we can stop some of it, can't we? And then he adds something else here. He says, He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. And then he adds, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, he who engages in evil speaking against a brother or sister is actually sitting in judgment upon that brother or sister. And of course, Matthew 7 at verse 1, the Lord reminds us in that part of the Sermon on the Mount that we're not to judge, judge not that you be not judged. But with what judgment you judge, you shall be Judged. And so by speaking against a brother, one is also speaking against and sitting in judgment upon the law of God. He's not only judging the brother or the sister, but you're sitting in judgment upon the law of God. Because the law of God tells us that we're to do what? Love our brothers and sisters. We're to love God. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Can you love, really love, and speak evil of a brother? That kind of action declares God's law of love to be defective, doesn't it? It declares God's law of love to be a defective law or a bad law. And so speaking against a brother is also proof that such a one is not a doer of God's law. And if you persist in that kind of conduct, the individual who does so demonstrates his general attitude of rebellion against this. He's rebelling against God's law. And if he persists in it, he in effect is saying, I have no intention of being a doer of God's word. John reminds us of something very important along these lines in 1 John 4 and verse 20. And what he reminds us of is that it's not possible to enjoy a proper relationship with God without sustaining a proper relationship to one another. Here it is. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Well, that brings it all home very clearly, doesn't it? You can't have the right kind of relationship with God by being guilty of doing what James says here some we're doing or admonishing them not to do it. Do not speak evil of one another. You're putting yourself in judgment over the person whom you're, of whom you're speaking evil. You're also putting yourself as a judge in the place of judging God's law because God's law of love says you can't be a doer of God's law and speak that way and treat others that way. You can't claim to love God and hate your brother. And that would include speaking evil of that brother. And then he adds in verse 12 of chapter 4, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you, he asked, to judge another? Keep in mind that the only lawgiver and judge is Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18, when he spoke those words to the apostles in giving what we call the Great Commission to them, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Acts 17.31 reminds us that the day has been appointed on which God will judge the world. By whom? By that man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all in that he has raised him from the dead. The judgment of all mankind will come through Jesus Christ, the lawgiver 
and the judge. God has not bestowed upon man one ounce of legislative power. Man, in other words, does not have the right to sit in judgment upon the validity of God's law. Neither does man have the right to sit in judgment upon his brother. Now, as, as we say that, we need to add something quickly. And that is that James is not condemning all kinds of judgment. He's not condemning all kinds of judgment. In fact, there are some types of judgment that are divinely authorized and that are absolutely essential if we're going to be pleasing to God. Obviously, the context in which we're dealing with this judgment is the same context in which the Lord himself dealt with it in Matthew 7. Harsh judgment. Uh, the kind of judgment that judges motives, presumptive judgments, supposing something to be the case, insufficient evidence, imputing uh, unworthy motives to others without knowing the facts, judgment that places the wrong uh, interpretation upon a person's actions. In other words, harsh, hasty, hypocritical uh, judgment, hypercritical judgment, ill-natured judgment, slanderous judgment. That's what is being condemned. But we need to appreciate the fact that there are some types of judgment that are absolutely authorized by God. Judgment of civil courts, Romans 13, beginning with verse 1. God has ordained government. Judgment by the church upon disorderly members is not only allowed, it is commanded, isn't it? And we've talked about it more than once, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The man living with his father's wife, indicating his stepmother. And they were glorying over that. And as we've said before, we don't know exactly what the nature of their glorying was unless perhaps it was that they were contending, we're so loving, look, we can even accept a man who's living with his father's wife. We can invite him into our fellowship and fellowship him. And Paul wrote to say, no, that's sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Withdraw from this individual. And thankfully they heeded Paul's admonition. They did what he said and the man repented. Second Corinthians makes that clear to us. And the man was restored to his first love. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, for example. Uh, and then again at verse 15, passages that make it clear that we are to withdraw from the brother or sister ultimately who will not repent. Withdrawal is not the beginning of the disciplinary process, but it is the culmination of that process, the final act of what? Love designed to bring home that wayward soul, that wandering sheep. So that judgment is enjoined upon us. And also recognizing and disapproving of the faults and the sins of others is also approved by God. Luke 17, 3, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, what? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Rebuke him. That's judgment, isn't it? And if he repents, forgive him. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, what? Restore such a one. He says do it in a spirit of, of gentleness and con looking to yourself or considering your own self, lest you also be tempted. But he says do it nonetheless. And so we're to, we are to help one another when we see our brother or sister in sin. But that's not the judgment that is condemned here by James, clearly, nor is it the judgment that the Lord condemned 
in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Also preaching, preaching that identifies false doctrine, preaching that identifies those who are lost souls. That is enjoined upon us, isn't it? That's enjoined upon us. We are to preach against error, false teaching. We're to do it in a spirit of love. We're to do it, though, without compromise. And so what James is condemning here is the same thing the Lord condemns, the same thing that the Scripture condemns as a whole. That is, as we said, judging based upon a presumption about something about which we cannot know for sure, supposition, insufficient evidence, and so forth. But this is the very type of judgment that's engaged in by those who speak evil of others. And James says, you don't have a right to do that. You don't have a right to do that. Now, beginning at verse 13, we find in these passages, James deals with the sin of presumptive confidence in oneself. He deals with the sin of secularism, if you will. In other words, planning and acting without ever taking God into account. He deals with the arrogance of self-sufficiency, of failing to do good in these final verses. Notice what he writes. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. As we said, James here describes in these passages people that are so absorbed in making a living they have neglected to make a life. They've neglected to make a life. They have no room for God. They're immersed, totally immersed in secular activities. Have you ever known anyone who was, who was that way, who was just so caught up with the things of the world, so caught up with making a living that he or she failed to make a life? He really pictures the Jewish merchants of that day engaged in, in trade. And the Jews were the great traders of the ancient world. They traveled from city to city to carry on their business. And you might picture just such a man. He's looking at his map. He's making his plans. But, but he leaves God out of those plans. Now, we need to add again, as we did with the caveat about judging, that he doesn't say, James doesn't say that there's anything wrong with making plans. He's not saying, forget plans, just, you know, live as you will day to day, let what, you know, que sera, sera, as the old song by Doris Day said, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. No, he's not saying that there's something wrong with making plans. It's fine to make plans. He's not denouncing a desire to make money. He's not saying that it's wrong to, to try to make money. It's the love of money, remember, that's the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Not money itself. Money can be properly used and is being properly used by many right here in this congregation who are giving of their means as they have prospered to carry on the work of the Lord. And obviously there's been a great 
deal of good that has been done by those who have been blessed by God with the means to do that good. Nor is he forbidding the formation of business enterprises. Even business enterprises that, that involve long-range plans. In fact, goal setting is something that's uh, very much a, a valuable part of any business. Of counting the cost and setting goals, short-range goals, mid-term goals, long-range goals for your company or for your business. And what's wrong with that as far as the church is concerned? Not only is there nothing wrong with it, I believe there's everything right about it. I believe the church needs to be involved in short-term goals and mid-range goals and long-term goals. And I have been uh, asked to speak in a workshop years ago on that very subject, as a matter of fact. And so, obviously, he's not forbidding goal-setting and plan-making. But what is under condemnation is that all of this, on their part, had neglected to include God in their plans. There were those who were living as if time and the future were their own personal possessions and nothing or no one could change that. No one could take that away from them. But we have to remember that our plans are subject to God's intervention and God's alterations. You know, biblical teaching regarding miracles is confined to the first and second centuries until that which is perfect or complete had come and then the miraculous was no more because it was no more, no longer needed, of course. But just because that is the case, we don't need to fall into the, the faulty thinking that God's not doing anything in our lives anymore, not doing anything in the world today anymore. I heard a powerful lesson at the Memphis School of Preaching Lectures by Dan Winkler on Monday night of that lectureship about what God has done over time with nations and raising up pagan nations like Assyria and, and uh, Egypt and Babylon and others to punish his own people at times. And his recurring theme in talking about each of those nations was God deployed, and then he destroyed. He deployed Assyria to take the northern kingdom captive, and then he destroyed Assyria for their wickedness and their evil. But he used those people to punish his own people. He deployed and then destroyed the Babylonians. He deployed and then he destroyed the Medes and the Persians. And time and again, time and again, God has been involved. And we don't need to think that God is not involved in the affairs of men today. Through what? Miracles? No. But through His providence. The non-miraculous, indirect intervention of God in human affairs is very much with us today. And we need to appreciate that and understand what has always been true. Man Man proposes, but God disposes. Man proposes, but God disposes. And many make their plans and never ask God to be involved at all. And many make plans and then ask God to bless the plans they've made. Well, don't we need to involve God in the making of the plans themselves? And pray that the plans we're thinking about and that we're in the process of making 
are the right plans and that God will indicate to us through his providence something that will tell us otherwise if we need to be told otherwise. Remember that, remember that man in Luke chapter 12 who made all his plans and tore down all those barns and built bigger barns because the barns he had weren't large enough to hold what he had and oh, he thought he had it made, didn't he? And that very night he was told, this night, this night, your soul is required of you. Where's all this going to be? Whose is it going to be? Obviously, man proposes, but God disposes. The brevity of life exposes the folly of planning and living without taking God into account. Death often comes, doesn't it, with a shocking suddenness, a stroke, a fatal heart attack, the blinding crash of an automobile, and in a moment, without an instant's warning, it's all over. And that happens to young and to old. So what should we say, verse 15, instead of making plans without considering God in those plans. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And so here's the contrast in the attitudes that James is giving us. Rather than demonstrating self-reliance, self-sufficiency, arrogance, we must recognize at all times our dependence upon God. God is the superintendent of the universe. We're but the creatures of his hand. And as James says, you should say, if the Lord wills, he's not giving a formula here. He's not giving a verbal formula that needs to be repeated. Every time we say we're going to do something, we have to say, if the Lord wills. He's not giving us a, a verbal formula, but he is describing a sentiment that should live in our hearts and should govern our purposes and our plans. Trust in the Lord, the writer of Proverbs said, Proverbs said, and do not lean upon your own understanding. And then in verse 16 he says, But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James's readers possessed a disposition that chose to completely ignore God in the affairs of life and to live as though they were completely self-sufficient. But it went much further. Not only was it embraced in their hearts, but they also boasted about it with their lips. It was not only a feeling they had, but they expressed it. They expressed it. They would boast about it. In effect, don't need God. Reminds us of the atheists of our day, doesn't it? We talked this morning in Bible class about how how aggressive the atheistic agenda is in our time, the time in which we live, perhaps more than at any other time in our lives. And that's what they're doing, saying, I'm in control. Man is the measure of man. Man is the ultimate. God doesn't even exist. But even those who give credence to his existence fail so often to give anything but lip service to the God of heaven and do not really live their lives, obviously, in dependence upon him. And so 
in the final verse of the chapter with which we conclude tonight. He says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And when he says, therefore, as we've said, you have to see what it's there for. You can't divorce this passage from the context in which it is given. And so the meaning in the context is those who refuse to renounce their arrogance and refuse to announce their self-sufficiency and submit to God's will, they're refusing to do good. And that is sin. Now, obviously, we can make broader application of this statement and say this with confidence, that the most prevalent sin in the church is quite likely not what we commit, but what we omit, isn't it? The sin of omission. Many assume they are good because they're not bad. If I'm not bad, then I must be good. But you read the, the judgment parables and notice that the punishment that is meted out in those parables was not for something bad that was done, but for something good that was not done. Example, parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 beginning. What about that one talent man? What was the description of the one talent man in Matthew 25? That he was a murderer, that he was an adulterer? No, no, none of that. But the Lord answered, his Lord answered and said to him, verse 26 of Matthew 25, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. The next verse, therefore you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. What was the one talent man guilty of? Doing nothing doing nothing good with what he had been given. To him who knew his master's will and did not do it, he shall be beaten with many stripes. With many stripes. Greater opportunity, greater accountability. And oh, what a great opportunity we have to know the will of God and to do it. To know the will of God and to fail to do it is sin. Tonight you can know the will of God for your life if you're outside of Christ. You can know that God's will for you is to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To repent of your sins, that is change your mind about your sins and then determine to change your life in accordance with that change of mind to confess Jesus to be the Christ and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. There's scriptural authority for every one of those steps. John 8, 24, believe or die in your sins. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you, Matthew 10, 32. I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Jesus said. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. B plus B equals S. Not B equals S plus B, as much of the denominational world <coughs> teaches. Not belief equals salvation, then baptism, but belief plus baptism equals salvation. That's the only formula you can possibly derive from the Lord's own words in Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. It shouldn't shock us that it's clear 
because it's the dream of God that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If you haven't, we plead with you to do that tonight. If you need to come home to your first love as one who's wandered from the way and sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church publicly, come home in that same public way and we'll pray with you and for you to a God who loves you and will forgive. As we stand to sing, will you come?